0: Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. So dad, how are you doing today?
1: I'm very good in general. And I'm honestly extremely psyched about talking with Henry Schuckman today, including for the ways in which I know it will nourish my own personal practice. And that's not something I say that often about anyone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's very high praise coming from you, dad. No, I mean, I think it's totally true. I've been really looking forward to this. And as you said, today, we're very happy to welcome the guiding teacher of Mountain Cloud Zen Center, Henry Shuckman. So Henry is a writer, a poet, and a Zen master of the Sanbo Zen lineage. He's published nine books to date, which have won numerous awards. And he writes regularly for a tricycle, the New York Times and other publications. His most recent book is One Blade of Grass, Finding the Old Road of the Heart, a Zen memoir. It's a wonderful book that I know Rick has been reading recently and has deeply enjoyed. So Henry, thanks so much for being here. How are you today?
2: Well, right now, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed, actually. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Rick, I, I'm, I'm going to be a letdown, I'm afraid, after that kind of, uh, but, you know, I'll do my best, uh, but I'm, I'm very, very happy to be here, actually.
0: Yeah, it's, it's just so lovely to have you. We had such a nice little connecting before we started recording here today that I really enjoyed personally. And I would just love to start by kind of introducing you to the audience a bit and and grounding our conversation and your background and your history. You were born in Oxford, England, and today you're the guiding teacher, as we said, of a Zen center in New Mexico. So I'm just sort of wondering, how did you come to Zen practice
2: and how did you get here? Well, you know, to be honest, I've got this book, One Blade of Grass, which is Mm -hmm. sort of in one sense, an attempt to answer that very question. Yes, How did an (laughs) eczematous Severely eczematous child of two Oxford professors in England, wind up teaching meditation in New Mexico to give a super short, deep eczematic pain in childhood, a whole lot of shame, a very troubling parental domestic situation as a child, very very difficult internally. You know, materially we were fine, educationally, culturally we were well endowed. It was Oxford University that we grew up in. We meaning my, my older brother and younger sister. We were very lucky in that sort of regard. But I had a lot of internal misery mm. and hardly even knew it, hardly could bear to even admit it to myself. Then I went away to work abroad on a gap year when I was 18 slash 19. In the course of that, I had an epiphany. I had a absolutely out of nowhere, out of left field, completely unexpected, completely unlooked for, not at all interested in it. But it happened, a profound awakening experience. And it was the most amazing thing by far that had ever happened in my life, as far as I was concerned, to the extent that my life was resolved. And I felt I could die blissfully if I needed to, if that was what was going to happen. It was 100% fine. And I was 19 years old. I didn't know I'd been looking for anything, but I had found it without even looking for it it was the answer to life. It was that profound. It was just another order of experience that somehow I knew had been here all along and I'd never noticed. And now I had, and life was answered. End of story. Fulfilled human being done. That was how it felt. A few weeks later, I went home. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Uh (laughs) there's some kind of a joke saying you think you're so enlightened go home for the holidays
2: (laughs) well you know in my case i was a tender wide open 19 year old with basically no emotional skills and resources whatsoever Mm. and i got home into this environment where i had been so unhappy for all my life to date, without even recognizing it. And now, wide open, I recognized it with a force that was overwhelming. And I had a a kind of breakdown, really. But I couldn't even admit that to myself. I was so filled with shame at collapsing like that, that I could not bear to own what was going on. And that was compounded by the fact that I just solved the ultimate riddle. I just discovered the ultimate truth, and here I was, literally weeping wreck, and I was broken. Basically, I I felt like a car where only two of its four cylinders are firing, you know. And I I just, and I didn't know what to do about it. And somehow, I again, I'd seen the answer to everything. I had no idea how I'd lost it. I had no idea how I'd found it, and even less idea how I'd lost it. And I'd lost it badly. I wasn't just back to some some normal. I was way down, way down. And it was actually only in my early, like when I was about 24, I decided perhaps I could do something about this mess. Maybe I could just do one little thing. And what that was, was to start meditating. And it was TM style. I'm eternally grateful to them. So I clung to it. And I did it twice a day for 20 minutes, doggedly, religiously, devoutly. And I began to recognize that I was unhappy, which I hadn't really been able to say. And I started therapy and things started to just gently change. And along the way, I found my way to Zen. Mm, mm -hmm. And the reason for that was I recognized quickly that Zen knew what had happened to me when I'd been 19 years old. Mm. I just intuited it. And I was right. And actually it was, it was a still a long journey to finding my actual first real Zen teacher who really helped me. I mean, along the way I was writing, you know, I developed a career as a writer and it took me to New Mexico. My third book was about D.H. Lawrence, the English writer and his time in New Mexico. And I made some deep friendships right away when I was here and that I sort of ended up living here. Mm. And yeah, I think that just about covers it actually.
0: I think you completely covered it, including setting me up for about ten other questions that I'm <laughs> extremely curious about, which was lovely. Thank you, making my job very easy, but kind of uh, really fundamental to all of this, Henry, you spoke about a time in your life where there was a lot of suffering, a lot of discomfort, a lot of pain, of various kinds, and I'm just wondering how has your internal landscape, how has your the feeling inside of you changed as a result of the practices that you've taken on over the last decades, really.
2: Yeah. I mean, there've been different phases, you know, where... Totally. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was just the wondrous feeling of being able to find a little bit of rest. That was the first thing that came with me with TM. Mm -hmm. To just taste a kind of balm, it was really like a healing balm. I wouldn't get it every time I sat But I'd always get something so that I noticed every time, whatever state I was, when I forced myself to sit down and and do the 20 minutes, at the end of it, it would be just a bit different. There'd be just a little space, just a little perspective. Then, you know, of course, well, I got into therapy. So there was starting to learn what emotions were. So the therapy, you know, I started to get a little bit more conversant with feeling and feelings and reactivity and communication skills but of course that started to enable me to find my feet a bit in the world well if i got into intense reactivity i could find my way back to some kind of center ground so then with deeper practice ongoing in later phases you know i started to find wow that there's a whole other dimension that's present here all the time and actually in a way i'd say the koan training i went through or the let's call it the zen training say for simplicity's sake was to be able to sort of intuit that access that more easily under more challenging conditions more and more i'd say in a certain way that's what it was about one of the things that i really love your book it's really a special
1: book for me and the thing that comes through you and your book is appreciating what is actually already here. And the subtitle here is, you know, is the revealing of the old roads, the old road of the heart. So early on, we meet this wandering, rough and tumble, rambling man who introduces you and your, and other boys that were kind of in your crew, (laughs) your gang, to, in effect, the old roads of England. And So he introduces you and you realize over time as you read the book that he actually was a real teacher for you. Your tramp friend and teacher early on, he's walking the old roads of England that we don't really recognize and yet they're there. We just have to come to see them and walk them ourselves. So that really helped me in some ways because I think of Zen as somewhat almost militaristic and and rigid, and particularly if one has just a superficial sense of it, as, as was the case for me. And you really kind of exposed the warm heart, as you said, the love that's true, really, underneath it all in the old road of the heart. So if I could, I, I wanted to jump into something that runs throughout your book as a central theme in your own work. And I want to build on a Tibetan saying, I believe, Sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, this ongoing cycle. And you definitely had a breakthrough experience that you've talked about already when you were 19. And if I may be so bold, I'd like to actually read from your book about it and use that as a way to open up this topic about what is the role of breakthrough experiences? I mean, particularly your own wing of Zen, your own branch there, Rinzai, really emphasizes sudden awakening and breakthrough in part through kohan training less so in other branches of zen or and definitely less so in the kind of theravadan roots of buddhism but still even there when the buddha had himself had a sudden awakening a breakthrough on under the bodhi tree or wherever it was when he had it that you know we've been trying to sort out you know for 25 centuries
2: <laughs> since so
1: if i may be Here we are. You're a young man, right around 19, you know, between high school and college in the American way of putting it. And you wrote about this experience initially in the third person. You wrote, a young man, a beach, a boat on the water. There was nothing to tell him what year it was. He could have been any young man in any century gazing over any water. And the water was fascinating, blindingly white, yet completely dark. Scales of brilliance slid over darkness so it alternated between thick matte black and blinding light. But water was transparent, so was air. Yet there the surface was, the sea's skin, thick as elephant hide. What was he actually seeing? As he pondered this question, suddenly the sight was no longer in front of him. It was inside him, or he was inside it, as if he'd stepped into the scene and become part of it. He could no longer tell inside from outside. At the same instant, the whole world around, above, below, the sand, the sea, the light on the water, turned into a single field of sparks. A fire kindled in his chest. His fingers tingled. In fact, everything tingled. The fire was not just in his chest, but everywhere. Everything was made of drifting sparks. The whole universe turned to fire. He was made of one and the same fabric as the whole universe. It wasn't enough to say he belonged in it. It was him. He was it. The beginning and end of time were right here, so close his nose seemed to press against them. Suddenly, he knew why he had been born. It was to find this, this reality. His life was resolved, the purpose of his birth fulfilled. And now he could die happy. He could die that very night and all would be well. So that's from your journal at the time as a young man. You wrote a little bit further about it in your book. To jump ahead slightly, that night I lay awake a long time, the watch fire in the heart burning long into the night. It seemed I would never need to sleep again. I'd found something larger than the world and didn't need to. But what on earth was it? What had just happened? So that's kind of the question. And, you know, it's an extraordinary experience. And it's remarkable to me that, as Forrest and I explored with Professor David Yaden, who studies actually so-called self-transcendent experiences, that roughly about a third of the people worldwide report having had an experience along these lines in which there are two central features. The sense of self falls away, typically fairly suddenly, while the the world, everything, allness, the, even the divine shines forth radiantly. And then there are the particulars of the, of the experience. So that's the way I think of understanding as well that these are not that uncommon as experiences, and yet it's often very difficult as it was for you to integrate them, to make sense of them, to build them, And then to preview as well some things, you have had a a number of other fairly profound experiences, perhaps what could be called Kensho or Satori in the Zen tradition, along the way. So what? (laughs) What is the place of these kinds of experiences? What are the pitfalls in seeking them? How do we integrate them once we've had them? What's the place for micro Kenshos? Moments of awakening. I love the line from Suzuki Roshi in which he said, I'm not sure there are enlightened beings. I am sure there are enlightened moments. How do we increasingly string together the enlightened moments so that we become increasingly permeable to and situated in
2: the old road of the heart? Oh, man, what a beautiful question. I mean, in some ways, my life has been about that very question. You know, I didn't intend it, but it has been. Yeah. Oh, I mean, Okay. Just some random things that pop up. First of all, it's real. And a sudden awakening is a plunge into reality. Yeah. How deep into reality? Who knows? I mean, who knows what the real reality is? Mm. I have my hunches, but later on in a, on a retreat, I had a significantly deeper kind of experience actually where there really just wasn't anything. There wasn't even consciousness. And that's a very difficult thing to report on. Mm -hmm. And people don't believe it when they hear it, especially if they're trained in Advaita, Mm. where they're told that everything is consciousness and that's what you need to find and that's awakening. And they're right, that is awakening. But there's different faces of awakening. Mm. And they're all real. For me, on some level, it was that one where there just wasn't anything. And somehow everything was born again, sort of thing. Everything kind of comes back, newly born, newly risen, everything. Somehow that was the one that actually healed me or resolved me. Mm-hmm. I'd had various other ones, like you said, prior to that. Mm-hmm. I'm so grateful. I can't understand why I've been so lucky to have these experiences because I've done nothing to deserve them. I've I practiced hard at times, I guess I could say but it is real. Mm -hmm. And so the role of them is that they're real, (laughs) that we're seeing something real Mm -hmm. indisputably in my view, and that all of them show us that somehow fundamentally we're loved. We're so loved that it's almost beyond love. Mm -hmm. And we're loved because we're part of everything. And we're also loved... Because we're nothing. Mm. It's because we're nothing expressing itself as us. But us and all things together, that is the most profound love, as I feel it and see it. Yeah. In fact, I call it these days, I've got this new series of retreats called Original Love, huh. which has various reference, but that's the main one. Yeah. The original love is the origin, it's the source, and it's love. I mean, if you get right down to it, it's nothing, but it comes forth. Therefore, it's love, it's generosity, it's giving. It's, and it's this moment, us talking like this, it doesn't matter that it's, you know, Berkeley and Santa Fe, and New Mexico. It's one <laughs> emergence, one unfolding, one arising, you know. And mm. it's just incredible that we are creatures that somehow have the capacity to go through this mm-hmm. and recognize it and appreciate it. Yeah. I find that mind-blowing. So that's the sudden, the gradual is exactly how valuable is it if it's just a flash in the pan? you know? And how valuable is it if we can get up from it and go and do harmful things? And we know that that's possible. There are just too many stories for us to doubt that human beings are multidimensional dimensional creatures that we may be highly evolved and opened and loving and full of kindness in one zone, and not know that we have hatred still lurking in another zone of our psyches, and it'll jump up and surprise us. And if we're honest and ready, I hope we we say, "Whoa! Well, I may have had some enlightened experiences, but I still got work to do, you know. And I am just a mosaic. I'm a collage. I'm a I think of it being like a disco ball, you know, those disco balls with all the mirrors on. (laughs) I got 200 mirrors, you know? (laughs) Yeah, there's a cluster of seven over here, or maybe it's 17 that are super clear, but there's some pretty murky ones down here as well. And am I going to just work on the good stuff? No, I got to work on the occlusions as well. I I had this therapist who talked about back-end and front-end. I love that. The front-end is growth and Expansion and all the good stuff. But the back end, you can't forget about the back end. So I do think, I mean, I'm not sure that what I'm saying actually is a traditional view of gradual cultivation, which might be more about, well, I suppose traditionally in a monastic setting, learning somehow to keep that awareness when you're washing the dishes and scrubbing the floor, folding the laundry. You know, in all the sort of ordinary round of life to keep that awareness. I mean, I say that's the ideal of gradual cultivation. Personally, I have had some more significant blocks that were more psychological, I think, and, Mm. you know, from early trauma and whatever, you know, and unkind things I've done that I had to reckon with in relation, intimate relationships where I just didn't do kind things. And, you know, and, living with the aftermath and, and living with the recognition of that and the remorse for that. And so I guess it's ongoing, you know, well, for me, I expect it, as long as I'm granted being alive, I'm going to be doing gradual cultivation.
1: Yeah. I know Forrest has a question. I just want to say, I appreciate that implicitly you're speaking as well, speaking of teachers to the, the fact that some teachers in all kinds of traditions and in all kinds of positions of authority who may well have some realization, some personal charisma, when they dial into their teaching channel, what comes through is really great. I've had teachers like this, but when they step out of that channel and they're now in another channel, they can be exploitive, abusive, drunkards, all the rest of that. And I really appreciate you acknowledging that and um, emphasizing as well the importance. Particularly of people teaching roles, to keep paying attention to their own shadows, their own back end. If we don't take care of the back end, we gradually become full of, you know what? <laughs> and so I really want to thank you for calling that out. All right, Forrest. Yeah, no, totally. I I'm glad you
0: said that, Dad, because if you didn't, I was going to. So thanks for for getting that in there. Kind of alongside this idea of just these awakening experiences. Whether it's in a contemplative spiritual perspective where somebody wants to feel like they're connecting to some energy, some some something that is greater than themselves, or it's even with a almost secular viewpoint of like seeing the world more clearly, seeing the nature of reality more clearly. And at least for me, the two of those start to intertwine fairly rapidly, and it becomes challenging to kind of have one without the other. But okay, everyone operates from their their own viewpoint and their own perspective. A lot of people get into this kind of work, whether it's personal development work or it's contemplative practice through through meditation, mind training, whatever, in order to have one of those experiences. They want to have that sensation where all of a sudden the veils drop away and they have an experience along the lines of what you wrote about in the book, pretty profound. And we know that many people never will even if they have a profound level of personal practice. And sometimes those experiences are held up as these like end goals, these things where we're doing this in order to have that experience. And I know that Rick has spoken often of being a bit of a plotter to use his language, somebody who kind of chugs along the the gradual cultivation, but may or may not ever experience the sudden awakening. And I was just wondering, how do you help people relate to that when they're going through... This diligent practice—the reality that, like the fruit is the path, as opposed to some amorphous end goal.
1: Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Is it my son? Awesome! <laughs> I, I know <laughs> you're a parent too, Henry. But you can, you can uh, delight with me, mudita. You could be
2: happy for me. Uh,
1: yes. You bet! Right on! Right on, um, Forrest. Yeah, Good I'm one.
2: very, very happy for you, Rick, and happy for you, <laughs> Forest, as well, and your dad. Oh, you know, <laughs> you. awesome pair. Uh,
0: Oh, that's so lovely.
2: But, you know, it's such an important point, and it's a really tricky one. And, Mm. I mean, first of all, we know that in practice, the actual protocols of practice, the methodology of practice, require us to keep returning to the here and now. So if we're imagining some future wonderful state that we're going to attain, fine, it's just another thought. We recognize it, we welcome it, we let it dissolve, and we come back to the here and now. Because all that matters in practice, in a sense, is the here and now, right? It's okay to have an aspiration, but when it comes up in the course of sitting, in the course of daily life, we treat it like any other thought, right? If you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, totally. So there's that pragmatic side to it, first of all. Yeah, secondly, I mean, there's actually a hazard also of having had some experience like that yeah totally like wow i've had it i'm done i'm cooked and we know that well for most of us that's not going to be the case Mm -hmm. how do we stay humble how do we just stay on the road of just chugging along and not resting on our laurels at all realizing that actually it's gone how do we let it go but actually, let me come back to the the first side. Like it's true that there are, you know, I, I know many people who sit for a long time, and they kind of have some expectation that something like this might happen. It's a particular hazard in a lineage like the one I'm in, where it's expressly talked about, you know. And I'll tell you what I'm doing mm-hmm. as a teacher. That would be lovely. Yeah, I'm emphasizing other kinds of practice, other focuses mm. of practice, and. I've I've got this new project I'm working on, Original Love. It's all about, basically, it starts with mindfulness and the hindrances and a lot of sort of classic early, well, some classic early Buddhist approaches, the four foundations of mindfulness. And we work through them somewhat carefully, you know. So really building up a breadth of a foundation of our mindfulness. And, you know, that can bring a lot of, Ease and healing and joy, you know, and greater grace with our troubles and our difficulties. And so that in itself, we can say, well, wow, this is wonderful. I'm learning to live more in my body. It's so much richer. I feel like I'm coming home. And if we're getting those kinds of feelings, it's enough. When we're feeling good like that, you know, that tender sense of coming home to ourselves. Do we really need anything else? No. This is my life. How wonderful that I'm reclaiming my life. That kind of feeling. And then I talk about support, how important it is to not treat meditation as a solitary pursuit, which is very common in the west, I think, you know, but actually what kind of support we have is is crucial and recognizing that we all already have just Infinite varieties of support, mm-hmm. or we wouldn't be here at all, you know. And then I talk about getting into absorption states because they are very fulfilling in and of themselves. You know, it's another way of being fulfilled. So you don't need something flashy like awakening. It's enough to be just sitting and finding that one's own being is just utter peace, suffusing the whole space. You know, it's it's fantastic to discover that's possible, that we can get happier and happier with less and less, basically. So then, with that kind of a framework, awakening is just a little cherry on top. If you see what I mean. (laughs) Another way of talking about it, I think, is it's
1: not to be dualistic that awakening is distinct from the path. You know, obviously, awakening is the path. What is awakening is awakening now in the present, continuously, in a sense. Anyone who's listening to a show like ours knows mental
0: health challenges are a part of life, but they don't have to define who you are. If you're navigating something difficult, one of the best things you can do is get some high-quality help, and The Dr. John Delaney Show is a great place to go for that. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy Dr. John's show. It was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling. He's been working with people for over 20 years, and the show has really a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to make good choices related to difficult situations and common challenges, like facing depression, overcoming anxiety, or connecting with other people. You can send them your questions by leaving a voicemail at 844 844- 693 3291, or emailing askjohn at ramseysolutions.com. It's a great resource for people and a really nice compliment to the work we do here on being well. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on our website. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Being Well today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Being Well. We all know that the food we eat today affects how we feel tomorrow. But what if I told you that it could affect how you felt in 20 years? We're learning so much these days about our bodies, and one of the challenges for people right now is that there's an enormous amount of information out there, but it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe's Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume, even if you don't understand the science, with loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Naomi and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: I wanted to get at this in a certain way, in that there's a saying that in, in the Buddha Dharma, that your mind takes its shape from what it rests upon. And so I sometimes will give this meditation instruction, rest your mind upon what calls your heart. Or a little more recently, if you bring to awareness awareness, Whatever the most enlightened thing is that you know to be true, whatever that might be, you know, it could be that Christ loves me. It could be this knowing of everything entwining together with fundamental all rightness, whatever that might be. And then you rest your awareness there. It's a simple instruction, isn't it? What do you know to be true? Maybe love is is a very important thing for you, you know, to be true. All right. Rest your awareness in love. Okay. So I'm getting at this question for you as a teacher, really, if there were two, three, four particular pointing out instructions you would offer to people or suggestions for where you find it helpful for people to rest their awareness in what's actually already true, including using that as the framework for the gradual process of training and purification and cultivation, which takes time because that occurs in a time-bound body. It takes time to develop these qualities and to let go of various things. But we can do that in the context of a felt knowing already of the good news that is true. Okay, so in that context then, what would you suggest to people? What do you suggest to people generally is helpful to rest in as the good news that's already true? Oh, uh, wow, what a great question. One last little teeny weeny thing, because and this this inquiry gets past conceptualizing. Yeah. Yeah. Which we're good at, we're trained in. For example, you're very good at with language. And obviously there's a recognition that, like the proverbial raft we can use language we can use conceptualizing we can use distinctions to get us across the river but then we don't want to keep carrying the raft around
2: yeah yeah, okay. yeah 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 well look here's what my own answer would be this ah this sense of everything arising now everything arising now and it's just an act of love it's all an act of love it's a gift. It's a, ah, oh, you can just feel it. It's coming up now out of nowhere. There's such peace in that, and there's such energy in that, and there's such love in it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's it for me. Now, but if a student comes, who's having a really hard time. They can't, the streams of thought are painful thought are just roaring through their mind. They don't know what to do about it. They're exasperated. The practice seems to be making them worse. Well, I don't know. I might say that, but I would definitely also say something about the body, mm-hmm. coming home to the body, You know, finding what's going on in the body, that actually there's some. there is some peace in the body and there's probably some trouble in the body as well. And coming to recognize both, being with both. You know what I mean? And like, I I don't know that that would be a universal. I
1: speak about recognizing in the body when it's true and it's usually true that the body is basically all right right now. And you can tune into that reassuring feeling, you know, that in a way that's very kind of humble and sweet and respectful of the scared little animal, the soft furry animal that we all are. Yeah. So I suspect present in your guidance with people about
2: recognition of their own body. Yeah. Yes, yes. I love that. I, I picked that in your teaching. I picked that up in your teaching, Rick, and I love it. Mm. I think it's again, it depends what state somebody's in. I mean, cause I was about to say there's just so much to be grateful for. It's mind blowing. But not if you're in a wrestling with yourself with in, in a very challenging life situation. I mean, part of this thing that I'm teaching, this original love, has these different sort of zones, four zones, because I think life situations will affect what is appropriate practice for us. And it's not right to, I mean, I know there's some hardcore Mahayana teachers will say, you know, if you're suffering, no, there's nobody there, nobody there. I, I just don't think that's very helpful for a traumatized person to hear, you know. I think we need to adapt or be conversant and fluent with different sort of levels of our being and that they're all important. And our practice should, well, somehow, maybe I don't like using the word should, but can meet those different aspects of ourself. Mm. And I love the fact that that's possible. And I love the fact that in all forms of practice, as I understand it, Love is still the main factor, as I understand it. So just
0: kind of speaking to that, Henry, and picking up on some of the things that you're saying here, you referred a second ago to somebody who is doing the practice and doesn't feel like things are getting any better. In fact, things are getting worse. And you've spoken to your own experience, both in the book and here during this podcast, with eczema and chronic eczema, a lot of pain in the body. We've had previous practitioners come on the show and say things along the lines of, I started sitting regularly, and I found all this pain in my body. And just from my personal experience talking with a lot of friends about this stuff, a lot of people get drawn to practice through suffering, fundamentally. Something hurts, and they don't want it to hurt anymore. And a lot of that suffering for many people is oriented around the container of the body. Is this the body that I want to be in for some people? This is a body that carries a lot of pain. And often that suffering can become a kind of self-identification. And in a weird way, one of the things that can impede people sometimes from moving into some of these more, whether it's a non-dual state or just a relaxation with ego identification or however you want to talk about this, is that they're in a lot of physical discomfort and they don't feel like they're on the same team as the container that they've kind of been placed into. Whether it's through kind of the lens of your own journey or just like talking with a lot of people over time, how have you helped people move through some of these issues? Or how do you think about these yourself? Whether it's working with physical pain or just kind of increasingly dropping into that sensation of being, quote unquote, on the same team as the container that you're inhabiting.
2: Well, the way I would come at it and have done for myself is simply put is really about finding where the discomfort is and learning to give it space and allow it. So that's what my journey has been, and I've shared that with students quite a bit. Because, well, you know, usually, whatever the nature of our emotional distress, it's expressing itself somewhere in the body, often in the chest area or solar plexus. At least there's something to be found there that if recognized and if then allowed and not banished or suppressed or rejected, if it's actually welcomed, some healing starts to happen, that we are, I don't know, our consciousness grows a little bit or our our capacity grows a little bit and we can allow this difficulty to be present in us and have some little space around it that in time, I believe, will help it to untie itself, unbind itself, release itself. But of course, we might need some therapy along the way. I don't really, just because uh, you know, of my own journey, I don't really believe that, well, I don't know, I suppose theoretically maybe practice can do everything. But I don't, I've, that's not <laughs> me. Yeah. I've done therapy, you know, numerous times. Yeah. I've tried a lot, of, I've enjoyed a lot of, well, learn to enjoy a lot of different kinds of therapy. I've needed to come back to it in my life in different ways. I think I had early trauma that was really deep and it surfaces again at times. And just recently, for example, I've been going through a very hard situation indeed as a parent, very, very, mm. very, very, very challenging situation as a parent. And it's very painful you know, to see mm. one's offspring having a hard time and so on. I can't go into it, but but, you know, it's been helpful to check in with, with a few sessions with a therapist who's good with trauma. I'm really happy to be able to do that. And it's for me, that's always about finding it in the body. Mm, How mm. am I going to let this thing be there? Because until I let it be there, it hasn't got a chance of moving, changing, flowing and releasing, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's been a huge part of it for me, that combination of acceptance of a sensation that you're having, not permission of it, but I think that sometimes people can move into a state where they want to fight the pain and that, you know, mixed returns from that most of the time for most people. So acceptance is great. But then just what you said on the end about like, for me personally, one of the most useful parts of exploring any kind of non-attachment has been the allowance of change, which then becomes a kind of appreciation for it. Yes. You know, because yes. when we're releasing our attachment a little bit at a time to the way that things are, we can permit them to change. And is that easy to do when you're in a lot of physical discomfort? Of course not. But it is a useful practice for it. So sometimes you can get into this kind of double bind where the the thing you need is the thing that's being impeded, and and that's challenging. Yes. Yeah.
2: Oh, that's very well put. Mm. It's like we can get into a a sort of third arrow situation. So <laughs> got the first arrow, yeah. and then we get the resistance to it, mm. and then we get the resistance to the resistance doing anything but being the way it is. Yeah,
0: absolutely. That's a great way to say it.
1: I watched a conversation between you and Stephen Batchelor, who's a wonderful practitioner and scholar. And Stephen said something that just kind of knocked me out. And I've been reflecting on it and sort of practicing with it ever since. So I just thought I'd Name it here. Essentially, and I'm paraphrasing Stephen, who's extremely articulate, he was describing the Buddha's enlightenment. And, you know, we could extend that to say maybe this is a kind of awakening that's available to all of us with fireworks sometimes and also with moments of awakening, many times a day, as they also say in Tibet. So Stephen's description, as I understood it, he essentially said the Buddha realized two things in a way that was profoundly penetrating and transformational and irrevocable, irrevocable for him, which is that first he realized that everything is contingent, which is to say intertwining, interdependent, interrelated processes that exist emptily in the sense of a cloud-existing in effect, emptily distinct from a solidified brick. It's just, which means by implication as well, that the conventionally congealed sense of self is actually ungrounded. It doesn't actually have a real, it's unfounded and ungrounded. Okay, that's one. And then alongside that is the feeling of not craving, that nothing is missing, nothing is wrong. There's no problem. It's okay. It's okay it's like falling through space contentedly, Mm. kind of sort Mm. of both together. And so I just thought that was a wonderfully direct and experiential description of enlightenment and an opportunity to grow into stabilizing oneself, to increasingly establish oneself in that felt realization as it gets increasingly established in one. So we have these two aspects of it this recognition of emptiness, and with alongside it a feeling of fundamental peacefulness and all rightness and, and love as well together. And so I just wondered if you wanted to comment on that way of oh. looking at awakening. And hmm. I guess for me, I just think the, as a psychologist, the fundamental structure of suffering is essentially something, there's a problem that's happening to me, a me as a, in the sense of a self distinct from a person, there's an entity inside it, you know, an ego, something bad is happening to me and awakening is the opposite of that, you know, no problem, no self, things are occurring, pain is occurring, joy is occurring, but in a way that's ownerless. Yes, yes. And so practice in some ways is helping oneself deepen in the sense of no problem, no self.
2: Yeah. Yes.
1: Which is not a bypass away from doing what we can for social justice and and so forth. We still try to fix a leaky faucet and save up some money for our old age and all the rest of that. Yeah. Anyway, so I've rattled on a bit here. Uh, I want to hear more from you. You know, any comments on all that?
2: Yeah, no, that's beautiful. Uh,
1: including in your own practice.
2: Yeah, it's very, very beautiful. And I concur wholeheartedly that, ah, that peace that comes with seeing essentially non-separateness. And non-separateness, again, it also has different faces. Sometimes it's literally seeing that there's only a kind of single tissue of all things and that makes the things very pixelated and not solid, or translucent and not solid. But sometimes it's just a sense that, you know, I can't separate myself from this environment that I'm sitting in. It's one thing, it's one phenomenon, and it instantly brings peace. Right. Because how can there be a problem with what's already you? Yeah, that's One of my Zen teachers, he'd always say, uncompromisingly one, uncompromisingly one. You know what I mean? There's no exceptions. And he would give these retreats. It's actually my current master still. It's called Yamada Ryoin Roshi. He uh, still often, when he gives a retreat, he'll start with that. Mm. And it's partly, I think, because he's very welcoming to all people and all faiths. And if there's some Christians in there, he doesn't want them to think God's outside of it, mm-hmm. uncompromisingly one, mm-hmm. meaning even God is part of this one. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's, ah, oh, I mean, as an idea, maybe it's nice, I don't know, but as an experience, it's, oh, it's so healing. It's exactly well put by Stephen, you know, it takes away all possibility of craving. At least at the time that that's clear. Yeah. And I found that, you know, yeah, if actually one way that an old Zen poem puts it, this poem called the Shinshin Ming from the sixth century, it's an amazing document, says it's all about preferences. You know, in his poem, he said, if we just let go of like and dislike, it's all clear. Yeah. And you can find this in yourself. If you're not feeling 100%, just check is there some little niggling sense of preference it manifests as a sensation actually i know it in my solar plexus i can tell when it's there then what i don't do is try to get rid of it i let it be there Mm. it can participate in this great interconnectedness it can participate in that kind of flux that stephen was describing and actually it was you right it's one of the threads in the single fabric yeah exactly
1: exactly and so it belongs and it's beautiful Related to this, one of the
0: things that many people hold up as the point, which is itself a bit of a silly phrase here, but the point of Buddhist practice, if you will, is like the relaxation of self-identification. Slowly releasing attachment to this thing that is me. And that's part of what you're referring to here, what Rick is referring to in terms of the eddy and the stream, what you're referring to in terms of All of this openness and possibility that is inherent for all of us, including a feeling that is suffused with love. And I would love to maybe just get a simple sense from you, if it's possible to make it simple in such a way, of how that has felt for you as you have continued to engage it over time. Because for many people, there's a feeling of clinging or resistance that starts to come in when they start to engage these topics. And then over time, to steal a wonderful line from, I think that it was Stephen Snyder who said this when we was on the podcast with us. Over time, the apple starts to fall away from the tree. And in that moment of releasing, there is concern and fear and anxiety. And then the apple falls, and you realize that it was all right the whole time. And I was wondering what your experience with that has been.
2: Yes, yes, yes. Well, I hear two different things there. Let me just, Mm -hmm. maybe I'm wrong, but let me just see how this works. Please, yeah. One would be that, yes, when we're kind of approaching some big release, there may be fear. Yeah. Practice may seem like a real mess. We may, (laughs) but you know, really in a way we just do it. You know, we just do it. We just live, if we, we just keep practicing and it'll sort itself out. You know, a lot of the Zen answer is kind of don't worry about it. (laughs) <laughs> just just keep doing your practice. Let it be as it is. Yeah. I mean, you can think of practice as you see, there's one side of it is like sort of doing the practice, trying to do the practice. And another side of it, it seems to me, is like coming to terms with ourselves. Mm. Which means allowing ourselves to mess up or whatever, you know, however much we think we're not practicing well, allowing that is good practice much better than forcing practice to be a certain way. The practice is letting, it has to always come back at least to letting things be as they are. Even if it may move from there, it's letting them be as they are again and again. Mm. So just in terms of like, if some big release is kind of coming and we sense it might be coming and we freak out, we allow the fear. We agree with it. We're kind to it. Okay, now I think that was something you were speaking to, right? hmm yeah. No, I think that's well said. But the other point that I was hearing is like basically contracting is how I think of it a lot, contracting into self, mm. feeding the contraction and identifying with it habitually, you know, or repeatedly. That's and Coming to recognize that that happens. Again, allowing that, just allowing it. When we notice there's contraction, allow it and basically love it. Mm what does it take? There's this slightly uncomfortable little nub, you know, in my chest. What does it take to love it? Finding how it needs love. Mm. And that will soften. That will soften identification with it. Enough, enough to make it all okay. Beautiful.
0: Yeah, that's really lovely, Henry. Thank you for that. And I think that I can't think of a better way to leave people here today. And I think it's a wonderful note to end the conversation on. So, like, thank you so much for doing this with us, Henry. It was a real pleasure talking with you today.
2: Oh, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's very, I've learned a lot and it's been great to have this chance to meet you, Forrest, and to get this time with you, Rick. I'm really honored. So, today we had the
0: real pleasure of speaking with Henry Shuckman. He's the guiding teacher of Mountain Cloud Zen Center and also the author of the wonderful book One Blade of Grass, Finding the Old Road of the Heart, a Zen memoir. We began our conversation focused on Henry's personal journey and some of the relationships that he had with different kinds of teachers along the way. One of the major early features of that journey was a sudden experience that Henry had when he was about 19 years old. It was a full-on, self-transcendent experience, and this was really prior to Henry doing any kind of in-depth personal development work or Zen practice. It just sort of came on unbidden. And it cued us into, I think, a really interesting conversation on the nature of these kinds of awakening experiences and the role that they can have in different people's development and process and practice. Studies have shown that about a third of people have an experience like this at some point in their lives. And there are branches of Buddhism, one of which Henry belongs to, that really emphasize the importance of these big, profound awakening experiences. But there's a pitfall sometimes in talking about them, because we know that most people will never have one. And sometimes we can create this kind of culture where these experiences are held up as these special moments that really highlight that somebody is unique or they've achieved a level of practice or whatever else. But there are two potential pitfalls of that. The first one is that we might put these experiences on a pedestal, and people might pursue the experience for the sake of the experience, rather than with the goal of deepening their practice altogether. And then alongside that, it might be easy to start getting kind of self-critical if we haven't had one of those profound experiences. But there's value in being, as Rick kind of lovingly refers to himself, a bit of a plotter, somebody who just kind of chugs along with their practice and stays, so to speak, on the cushion even if that doesn't necessarily come with some profound awakening experience along the way. I then asked Henry a bit about working with pain, and I was thinking about this in terms of two kinds of pain. The first kind of pain was really physical pain, physical discomfort in the body, and how he manages it in his body as somebody who grew up with a lot of physical discomfort. But then, more broadly, a kind of self-identification pain where one of the cores of Buddhist practice specifically, and a lot of contemplative practice generally, is focused on relaxing attachment to the self. And we can think about this in different ways. We could think about it in a kind of existential way, almost, where we're talking about, is there an ego here at all? What is consciousness? All of that good stuff. And absolutely, that's one way where we can relax identification there. But for a lot of people more practically in the world, Relaxing attachment to the self is about letting go of old painful patterns of behavior or being able to look back more clearly and say to ourselves, wow, that is a way that I used to be that I don't want to be in the future. And often for people, that can come with some psycho-emotional pain. It can come with some shame and some regret. And sometimes those feelings, those emotions can get in the way of our progression and our journey. So it's this funny thing where what we're trying to achieve less self-identification, but the pain of that process is what's impeding us from getting to less self-identification. From there, we talked about the use of language and very cognitive, highly conceptual processes and how that can sometimes get in the way of practice. How sometimes when we get really cognitive, it can actually sort of pull us out of our felt experience. And often it's the felt experience that can give us a bit of a gateway into deeper states whether those deeper states be just kind of more self-awareness, or they be something a bit more contemplative. Then, at the end, I asked Henry about relaxing and practicing with self-identification. What are some of the ways that he's gone through that process, and how has he seen the fruits of it in his own life? So that's all for today's episode. Again, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you've been enjoying it, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. You can also find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show. Finally, I have a new YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash C slash Forrest Hansen. And I create videos that explore topics that are pretty similar to what you'll find here on the podcast. If you're more of a visual learner, it might really help you out. That's it for today. Until next time, thanks for listening.